I'm not even surprised, but yeah, let's say that I'm happy to see that the things that I'm working in, they are kind of like interconnected into kind of like bigger things, kind of like <clears throat> I'm dealing with sound. I'm dealing with very simple objects. Sometimes it's cowbells. I'm making music with cowbells. It's much less transcendental, apparently, you know, like that and a Balinese gong or like sometimes it's, I, I try to take it and keep it humble, but no matter what the direction you work from, you end up having this connection to kind of like bigger and bigger spheres. So that's something that it's it's kind of like very relevant to me, kind of like, yeah, hypersonic sound is one of those gates or one of those open doors that can illuminate us about what sound can do to our consciousness, blah, blah, blah. But even if it's not hypersonic, even if it's the voice of your siblings or someone singing in the street or listening to the rain or listening to a bird sing. I mean, how would these things affect us? Even if it's the simplest thing, I, I, I feel like it, we're just beginning to understand. But intuitively, we know that these things are important. Welcome to UFO, a podcast where artists, musicians and Web3 builders talk about the future, a place for revolutionary ideas. I'm your host, Nick Hollins. On today's show, Marty Ruiz, musician and sound artist, professor and researcher in the sculpture department at the University of Barcelona. With more than a decade of experience with sound sculptures and working with masters in Japan. He's part of a duet band, Ryu, with Raquel Cruces, performing traditional folk music from the Iberian Peninsula. And member of Pangamelon, exploring gamelan music originating from Indonesia, using pots and pans to create unique instruments, rhythm, pitch and percussion, achieving trance-like states. We met in July in Barcelona in fortuitous circumstances, on the way in to see Tom York and Johnny Greenwood's new band, The Smile, at Pablo Espanol. In this episode, we talk about experimental music, sound and resonance, how it affects consciousness and the very nature of reality. The artists who originated sound sculpture, starting from the 1930s in Paris, and Marty's work collaborating with rebuilding Bechet sound sculptures with concerts in Japan. We also explore the realms of traditional music from Iberia, across places in Catalonia, Basque Country, and Portugal. How songs and lyrics are passed down verbally over generations, performed most often with single drums and voice and how these traditions are led by women. In this episode of UFO, you will hear new and wonderful sounds from these musical traditions and works produced by Marty in collaborative projects over past years. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors helping to put UFO on the air. Starting with Zerion. UFO is a podcast that brings together the brightest builders, creators, and founders shaping the cultural side of Web3, and Zerion is the perfect wallet for these active citizens. Zerion combines every corner of Web3 in a simple and intuitive app for self-custodial humans. Discover the hottest NFT collections, track your DeFi rewards, and vote in DAOs across 10 plus chains. Come along and check out their new app on mobile. You can get started at zerion.io. That's Z-E-R-I-O-N dot I-O. Lens Protocol is the open source tech stack 
for building decentralized social media applications. It's a new era for social media in Web3. Lens isn't a social media app. It's a protocol to let Web3 social apps thrive, a permissionless and transparent social graph that is owned by the user. With Lens, your followers go with you to whatever application you want to use. And instead of being trapped inside the walled garden of an algorithm, Lens lets you choose the way that you want to experience your social media. We are keen to invite UFO listeners to claim a handle and get started with Lens. And for right now, the best way to organize this is interacting with UFO on Twitter. Follow us, retweet, post replies. UFO is available on all Lens apps at ufoclub.lens. To discover links for music and sounds heard on this episode, check out the post on ufo.mirror.xyz. Before we start our conversation with Marty, I wanted to play a quick track from his band, Hibrata Nen E Kaval, from EP3, released in 2020. This song is Hanafuda Baccarat. <laughs> Now let's jump in with Marty, recounting how he and I first met in Barcelona in July. Yeah, it was a rainy evening or night. And uh, I was just sitting there with no with no tickets. I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get in to see uh, the smile, the band. So um, I just decided I would be listening to those guys uh, from the outside. <laughs> kind of like I was actually interested in like let's listen to how it sounds you know how it reverberates in, in that space because that's the um, uh, Pueblo Español the Spanish village it's like a reconstruction like a fake mock 
um, combination of different sorts of uh, uh, Spanish architecture. So the whole thing is weird in itself. And I had already listened to, uh, I mean, I have already been to Radiohead's uh, concert in Barcelona like twice, I think, or maybe three times. So this time it was just like, okay, if if I can get uh, a ticket, it's all fine. I'm going to be listening to how this reverberates. So I was out there <laughs> under the rain <laughs> and then you appeared. Uh, and that was not even the actual entrance. That was not even the, the real door. To, to get in so um, probably I told you something like hey, that, that's not the entrance you should go that way or something and then you probably asked me and then what are, what the hell are you doing here right or something like yeah that. it worked out like from our point of view we got there and like um, jumped out of the taxi and kind of we we're running late mm-hmm. um, me and Luke and we're going going to the show because I've been like flying into Barcelona and then flights were delayed and there was a whole ruckus about mm-hmm. it. And so mm-hmm. we just, you know, took off from the place as soon as we arrived halfway through the show. And so we went to go into that entrance, the wrong entrance, and you were sitting at the front, but where you were kind of there and in the space, it seemed like maybe you're in some official capacity. So we're like, hey man, like is it? And you're like, oh no, no, it's kind of this way. And then we sort of went, hold on a second. Like, do you have a ticket? Or so you're like, no, I don't have a ticket. Or like, come with come with us man i've got a spare ticket we're halfway through the show and we're just like straight in it was so so perfect that That we ran into you absolutely yeah because i could i couldn't get any online uh i was told well you go there and maybe you get some there and there was not even like a proper shop or anything it was just like okay i'm gonna be sitting here (laughs) and i saw so many people trying to go through that door so i was telling everybody kind of like no this is not the door (laughs) take that way i'm here because here i can listen to to the sound better actually and you were one of those but you were kind enough to start the conversation and you even have a spare one spare ticket so yeah it was unbelievable i felt like as we're going through the gates on the way in it was like some of the staff maybe knew that you were chilling down there and they're like oh this worked out he's getting in this is great i could sense a, a bit of happiness on the way in but then of course yeah we go in and so the smile uh, are on stage in this sort of amphitheater type um, space and their record is super great um, and everything. And then we get to chatting and then we very quickly discover that um, I think you just got tenured that day and that yeah, you're we were celebrating a that. P- PhD yeah. of sound art and music and you're talking instantly talking about like your experiences in the experimental music scene and being over in Japan and all these kinds of things. So mm-hmm. it was like mm-hmm. very serendipitous uh, meeting. Absolutely. These random encounters that has to happen at some point, but you can't expect. And, and then all of a sudden you're there you're, and you're talking about interesting stuff, kind of like all those different connections. Yeah. And we, we, we had a concert a few days later and you came. Yep. Actually, you couldn't make it to the university, though. Um, no, no, I didn't uh, get to. Sound sculptures, yeah. Next time. Definitely next time. Um, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, th- this first night at The Smile, I was just very happy to be back in Barcelona after a very long time uh, mm-hmm. of not being there. And um, uh, yeah, and then obviously, yeah, we came, we came to see your show where you have, maybe you can describe the band that you have, um, which is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reinterpreting almost like cataloging Spanish, hmm. like traditional folk music and stuff. Like it, it yeah. was honestly, um, you know, one of the top few highlight music experiences that we had in our whole trip in Europe. It was like phenomenal in this very small, 
kind of art space where you've it's just like a really beautiful space and experience. Yeah, that's 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 an art space. Uh, they do some ceramics and exhibitions and stuff and, and concerts and all sorts of like little tiny social events or art uh, events. So it, it, we thought it, it would be a nice place to for our for our show. So yeah, well, uh, I, I enjoy you so much um, that you liked it because um, it's as you were saying it uh, this duet with uh, Raquel. It's called Rio, and it's something that it's still even. Uh, I mean, it's amazing to me. Uh, let's say that I've I've been I've been working in. Uh, music or enjoying music and practicing, I don't know how to say that, for for about more than 20 years. Uh, yeah, like 25 years, something like that. We started playing our first gigs and everything is, it, I've, I've been always kind of like being on sort of like undergroundish, fringe, weird, non-conventional, always trying to not fall into mainstream stuff unless when it's super cool mainstream and then it's it's all fine but let's say that i have this tendency to kind of like always trying to i get bored or not interested in certain kinds of music and i'm so passionate about you know like gamelan music or or shoegazing or all that or you know so um about folk uh, spanish folk music or iberian because notion of what if Spanish or not it's also kind of like tricky so this last uh, years there's this word Iberian that refers to the whole Iberian Peninsula so it means that's also Portugal and those cultures like Catalan or Basque or from Galicia who don't feel generally we don't feel too um, attached to the idea of being Spanish uh, so Iberian folk, anyways, <clears throat> it, it's like a tiny little continent with all those different realities. And I wasn't really into that at all. I, I didn't really knew all those stuff, not because it was mainstream or not, but it's just that because it was not part of my musical background or field of interest. So the thing is that mm, I met this girl, Raquel, who has been working for 20 years in, in uh, rediscovering uh, those folk songs, like orally transmitted, mostly by women. And there's also this um, feminist uh, attempt to um, um, underline the fact that loads of very interesting music, uh, popular music was played and sung and just made by by women. So, so the thing is that I'm, I've I was amazed about what she was doing and we started this project. Um, we actually met because of frying pans and playing like metal stuff, which we can talk about later yeah, because it's definitely. this is more kind of like the things that I do, right? But but yeah, the interesting thing uh, about, about Rio, about this duet is that me not knowing about that kind of universe of like folk songs, um, with so many different genres, because actually, as I was saying, you know, like Galicia to the Basque Country to South in Andalusia or or Catalonia, you have like all sorts of like different musics. Um, so with with Raquel, we're doing that. I mean, she's kind of like listening to uh, recordings of like old women and or 
just like recordings from the 50s or the 40s. Uh, Alan Lomax came to Spain uh, the same way that he was doing in the States. So this this kind of guys, you know, like um, field recordings. And Raquel is um, studying this music. And so now I'm reharmonizing and having my own interpretations on what to do with that without having the knowledge of what it should I mean, in many cases, it was just like voice and drums. Just like hitting something, some kind of like kitchenware or whatever, and you, and you sang. <clears throat> so when I, when I come into this kind of stuff with my electric guitar, I'm coming from somewhere else. And this kind of mix still amazes me because as a, as a guitar player, it just allowed me to connect with... Uh, like connect certain different kinds of thoughts from jazz harmony to modal harmony and try to do something that is interesting to me at least. And that makes, uh, that is opening the, the, the spectrum of people that would be able to listen to what we do. <clears throat> you know, like um, I hardly would never listen to folk, Spanish folk music. And most of my friends wouldn't anyway. But the way we do it, it's kind of like making it more appealing because it's like an update and vice versa. There's people who is kind of like mainly focused into like traditional folk music that would never listen to kind of like more experimental or arty stuff. And the way we do, um, people appreciate it and find it's like an update and refreshing and like, so, um, yeah, I would probably just mention one more thing about this project is that it's something that I was not really uh, too uh, aware of at the beginning, but it has always been a struggle for me to, uh, like songwriting, it has always been a struggle. Like I've been making sounds for many years, like playing with sound and uh, experimenting and mixing and from electroacoustics to sound sculpture, etc. So sound production in general terms. But singing songs with lyrics, then it I I very often I get to a kind of like a like a dead end, you know, kind of like I don't really know if I have anything to say in like literally in, in words. I have things to share and emotions and stuff, but when it comes to making it making it into words. I can talk for ages, but if I have to sing and, you know, like this, these are the lyrics. Mm. So with, I have this band called Ibrida Neni Caval. We can talk about that. It's more kind of like this shoegaze experimental post rock, whatever. Yeah. And we always struggle to, to, to deal with lyrics. So when I started this project with Raquel, I realized that there's something that is so amazing to me is when you find this um, anonymous music music that has been uh, sung for ages and being transmitted. But but there's no just one single author. Of course, someone must have started some lyrics, but then it keeps, you know, bouncing from town to town, people to people, and lyrics survive in them in themselves, same way as, as the tunes, the melodies. So being able to uh, have reinterpretations on that, 
uh, it's something that is very moving and very kind of like a very different experience that I never had before. And th this is kind of like leading me into like different regions that I would never expect at all, even when the lyrics are not so profound or interesting. But just the fact that those memes, those cultural entities has been surviving for ages. And now why couldn't I? <laughs> be part of that too so that that's something that i find very appealing about what we do with raquel kind of like you have you feel like it's like what that can dance used to claim about their music you know kind of like this kind of like intergenerational transmission sort of kind of like there's something that it's trespassing us and i sometimes feel that when we're playing with raquel kind of like who is singing here actually <laughs> you know Clame a tu, mare de terra sola, arrape els teus genolls amb ungles brutes, invoque un homo secreta consigna, mare de por, segresta d'esperança. Mentre el gran foc o la ferocitat segueix camins, segueix foscos camins, m'agafa tu els que més m'estimava i canta el jorn del mar. El pregón idioma, un alfabet fosforescent de pedres, un alfabet sempre amb la clau al pati, el mentestí i la sendera de llum. Sempre a la nit il·luminat en terc, el vell futur una angusta contrada, seràs el rem que fa pujar el pa, seràs el sol que seràs la collita,
for us in the audience in the art space, I can describe, I mean, like there's a power to it as well because you play, it's a, it's a duo and there's like so much power and clarity mm. that like comes in a, in a pairing like that. And the space, you know, the space for the instruments, you don't have a five piece mm-hmm. group. It's just what it is and it fills the yeah. space. So between the sort of experimental, um, uh, we can tag it that like guitar kind of stuff, quite free form, uh, as you say, like interpreting different styles. But then with Raquel, mm. she's a force of nature. Um, Definitely. <laughs> through, her, through her voice, but all, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll tag here, you know, check the show yeah. notes, check the blog post that accompanies this episode. We'll share mm-hmm. music in there and stuff like that and play some on the episode uh, of, of some other forms. But um, so she, she, as you say, like she's uh, a transmitter for these mm-hmm. um, traditional, you know, passed on songs and then singing it with so much power. And so like we're, we're listening to it in this space non-spanish speaking uh Mm -hmm. listeners and obviously uh uh many like local people are are in the audience and singing along with some of these songs and so it is Mm -hmm. it it became that sort of communal thing where the song comes down it retreats it gets small and then builds up big and everyone's clapping along and singing and i'll note as well that she's playing the the square drum for the whole thing i think maybe we should touch on like you know what what is this uh amazing yeah. square drum instrument yeah this is i mean i'm i'll try to i'll try to uh say it properly because actually she's a she's a master of that and she's teaching how to build and how to play it uh and i'm i'm just one of her students let's say that i've been learning a lot so hopefully i'll what i'll say is not going to be bullshit but <laughs> let's say that um I mean, it should be her. Uh, but uh, the, the frame drum, I mean, there has been frame drums all over the place since middle age and different shapes. Um, but, but only square drums, uh, square frame drums uh, survived until nowadays. So um, like I imagine like triangle or pentagonal shapes are cool but are more complex to build. So you you find them in, in uh, iconography and also like decorations sometimes. But mostly like making a square, it's so easy. But just like it's it's very simple geometry, like ninety degree angle, blah blah blah. And then there's like a goat skin. So uh, um, normally people would it and it. it 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 was from the uh, from the Arabs like the Arabic culture brought in stuff and kind of like you know like Spain was was conquered by by uh, Muslims and it was like under um, this cultural domination for for centuries so the Silk Road and all this kind of like old trades from east to west Egypt was kind of like everything was. Uh, kind of like mixed uh, and this idea of like eastern and western was not that clearly divided at all after the Roman Empire or during the Roman Empire and after the Roman Empire but the thing is that in Spain uh, those square drums survived uh, in the north of the peninsula uh, but more than in the south despite it, that they were brought uh by by the Arabs. 
but let's say that from uh, Portugal, North Portugal, Galicia, the Basque Country, blah, 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 until Catalonia. I don't know if our uh, dear listeners are familiar to, to the Spanish geography, but it, it's it's like a tiny continent. It's, it's, a, it's a peninsula, but it was so many f- different cultures going on, like the Basque has had a language that is non-related to any uh, Latin language uh, and there has been there forever, for ages. Uh, and it's like, like, like a UFO landing there and <laughs> dropping that culture that is completely unrelated. So let's say that in, in the North, uh, you have all those different cultures and we all had that square frame drum, which, <clears throat> which is very interesting because it's just square of wood with uh, goat skin. Uh, son and with some tension and it would last for your entire life like people would make one of those and, and that's the only thing you have that's the only drum you have and and it can be passed from mother to daughter etc and it's a simple instrument but it's so powerful i mean i'm surprised when i discovered that that it's um Really like a like a bass drum. It it can sound like a bass drum. It, it's it's pretty powerful. So in in all the north of the peninsula, people would play with two hands, like a like a like a tambourine or like the. I mean, you can find that in other in other places in the planet. Like even if it's circular or so, you play it with two hands. But uh, there's this little village in the center of Spain where grandmas used to play it with one stick so you play one hand on one of the membranes and with a stick in the other hand so you have these different sounds hand stick and stick against the frame so you get this so so you actually have like a drum and snare drum or something like that like like a rim uh drum like so that's super versatile. It's it's a very powerful instrument, so versatile. Yeah. And Raquel has been listening from all those grandma recordings, and they play so wild with like weird metrics. Sometimes it's not like even if it's like a like a amalgama, like odd metrics, like five eight or seven eight or eleven eight. The subdivision, the grid. It's kind of like drunk, drunken, you know, this kind of like J dealer stuff, like in which you don't have like a evenly spaced grid, but you have kind of like moments in where things kind of like shrink and yeah. ah. So they do that because they those old women had no particular notion on music theory or anything like that. But we are lucky because there are recordings from how those women used to play. And this is what Raquel is doing. So when you listen to Raquel, she's singing and she's drumming, uh, drumming like that. And as you said, it's like a force of nature. It's like this single woman is doing all that stuff, and it it gives me shivers. It's kind of like wow, yeah, that's so powerful, so f- kind of like fragile and 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 delicate and and so strong. And this decision, you know, bah! and that it's some probably a, an image that our world has been ignoring. Uh, in favor of this, you know, like the idea of like this male guy, you know, like humanity is this male guy, so powerful, blah, blah, blah. No, look at this woman. 
And and when you see Raquel, it's just that. And and to me, like that's like an example of all those lost culture that has been there. Probably in Spain we kind of lost it because we had a 40 years dictatorship and everything changed so much. But you can still find those those um, like uh, cultural expressions, and that's what she's doing. And this is probably I was why I was completely drawn into like making music with her because it connected me to something that I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, imagine Our luck from having run into you randomly out the front of the smile and meeting in that way, and then two days later we're seeing this phenomenal like folk tr- you know traditional kind of folk reinterpretation music like we you know we're in barcelona for a week or so like what incredible luck to experience that music while we're there it's just absolutely amazing uh and another aspect of that drum as well um i i love kind of exposing the fact that like there's a bit of that jay diller vibe um mm-hmm. in there which is you know phenomenal but um that there's you know like little rocks or whatever on the inside so you yeah. can kind of get this stormy rain crunching crashing sound going within what we're saying is also a tambourine and a bass drum and a snare rim shot and all these things yeah. all, yeah. all at all once mm-hmm. yeah actually i have my own here because i built my own with raquel she's teaching how to make it i can actually go and, and play it for you or you can listen to that but let's say that the, the interesting thing was like normally it was one woman with one drum with this goat skin. So you don't kill the goat for that. When the goat passes away, after having given you milk or whatever, or little goaties or whatever for ages, when the goat passes away, then you give a second life to that skin, uh, to that being. And it's with you for forever probably mm. uh, so you can you, you can have you can make music with that so it's just one woman with that goat skin and the thing is like the more noise you can add to the mix the better it is because it's just you hitting that thing and singing with your voice so then they would put little stuff in inside <clears throat> so there there would be like you know like seeds like chickpeas or something like that or maybe like two coins or like little pieces of like teen metal from, you know, like bottles or something like that, um, whatever. And, and then there's uh, those, those buzzing strings, you know, like, like just like in a snare drum. So um, just, just with one heat, uh, you can get kind of like a wider noise spectrum covered. It's not just boom, but you get like, you get like all sorts of like, so depending on the inclination of the, of the drum or depending on how you place it to play, you get more sound, just like in snare drums or like, like um, prepared instruments in which you kind of like add noise makers and buzzers and stuff. So it's very interesting to see how like popular culture and people who had no notions of like luthiery or, you know, acoustics or whatever, they would come up with this same solutions. Um, and it's so appealing to me, kind of like I would be using this frame drum for music that is completely non-related to folk music, but m- much more closer to, you know, like IDM and industrial stuff and kind of like break beaty weird stuff that I would be kind of like beat crushing 
but but it's interesting to see how things are actually connected yeah so uh, like in, in, in themselves yeah when we talk about all this like beat making experimental kind of stuff you mentioned meeting Raquel originally uh, in a story that involved pots and pans and, and things yeah. like that. Maybe you can kind of explain yourself a little bit. And this was something, again, I think like the first time we we're hanging out and having a conversation, you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm into this like Balinese music and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, in, in the broader context of like your work through the university as well, and kind of maybe you can kind of share a little about what that kind of sound world and project is about. And then I'd love to ask you about, you know, your time in Japan and stuff like that. I'd love to get to that. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, we're doing kind of like the reverse engineering, kind of like this dude with Raquel is one of my latest projects, let's say. Uh, and I could only be doing that now because I've been doing everything that I've done before. So one of those things that I've done before and that connects me directly with Raquel is working with uh, frying pans and pots, definitely. And I arrived to frying pans and pots because some of the stuff related to experimental sound. But the, the frying pans and pots is actually something that I'm still doing and that uh, amazes me. And that's how I met her. And it's related to gamelan music. So the thing is that we, we've been playing gamelan in Barcelona uh, this last nine years. We're going to be 10 uh, soon. Um, because the Museum of Music in Barcelona bought this, this Balinese gamelan. And some weird friends of mine, we were always kind of like eager to be able to play a gamelan because, uh, because of the Akira soundtrack, mostly. Most of us discover uh, gamelan because of, uh, of Akira. And again, the Yamashiro Gumi soundtrack. Uh, and some of us have already been knowing about gamelan already, but let's say that this was something that we all wanted to do. <clears throat> and we started playing gamelan when we when, when the museum bought that. And um, we were also working on the, at the sound sculpture workshop with the Bache things. We will discuss that later, maybe. But let's say that at some point we realized that like playing gamelan is amazing, um, but in many cases. Uh, people don't have access to the instrument. <clears throat> and it's complicated. To, I mean, unless you go to the museum, you will never have an experience similar or equivalent to like this like group of people interlocking and dealing with different tunings. And I mean, the whole dynamics of, of music making when, when, when it comes to gamelan, it's pretty much different to like Western orchestras or band or something like that. So playing pans appear to be like the closer and easier way to kind of like shortcut and have sort of like a yeah the low the cheaper version, but but still um, good enough, let's say. And so uh, frying pans can be used in two different modes of vibration. Let's say that depending on how you hold it, if, if you remove the handle of the pan, <clears throat> then it's actually a bell. The geometry of a pan is the geometry of a bell, of a flat bell. So, um, and it's also like producing a complex sound. It's not uh, clear pitched like a string. 
but there are like overtones and stuff that makes the whole thing kind of like spicier. In that sense, it's also close to, to what happens with gamelan instruments. So let's say that we started gathering pans and using them like bells or hitting them at the bottom, which then it sounds a little bit like a flat gong. So we had these two possibilities of producing sound with a pan and creating like different textures. And um, since we were already working in sound sculpture and trying to have uh, like offer uh, workshops and activities were in which people could participate easily and be engaged into music making or building, even if it was not very high techy, especially trying to make it make things easier and simpler. So many kinds of people could be engaged into the process. The band thing was so cool because imagine that you gather 50 pounds, all pans. You go to the recycling center, blah, blah, your friends, people knows about that. And then one day you have like 50 pans. Then the idea is like you sort them out, you listen to them. So it's uh, like a deep listening process or like a sensitization process in which the first thing you do is you listen and you organize them. Kind of like, okay, these five sound well together and those eight sound well together. So it's like making a music scale with what what you have, like found tunings. So that get people engaged into a level of like, It's like building something, but technically you're just listening and organizing. Let's say that technically it's super easy, but it's yourself, your friends taking decisions. So in that sense, the link that you have to the instrument, to the sound, it's different from when you buy something. It's like, okay, this is our material. We made it just because we like how this and that and that sounds. We don't even care about the name of the scale or the, you know, what kind of like intervallic ratios are there. You just work with your ears. And and then you once you have chosen some of them, we can play. And that's what we do. We try to teach people about uh, Balinese interlocking Kotekan uh, techniques and stuff. And it's always fun, but it's so cheap. And we've been doing it in several different places. And that's, again, something that is halfway in, like, rooted in tradition and halfway open to experimentation. Because these are pans and pots. <laughs> and each, each new set of instruments is new. And there's a little bit of a unexpected random things that can happen and can make things more specific to that group, to that day, to that whatever it's kind of like more particular and and personalized and that's something that it's I, I find it so attractive because it's easy cheap and so fun
as you're kind of like sharing about like the sound of these individual pans and building them out and essentially building your own uh, instruments or, or matches of resonances and tones and stuff, you know the band mm-hmm. Liquid Liquid just started? Which? Liquid Liquid. Have you heard them? No. Um, no, I'm gonna, gonna look for them. Definitely share with you. I feel like they're 70s New York. I might be getting this okay. very wrong. Um, yeah. Not sure. Be very uncool. Um, but that started <laughs> pl- playing in my head. Um, but it was kind of, you know, it was, an, you know, emerging from that kind of experimental 70s kind of energy. And, you know, it was the time of disco as well and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And you're kind of talking heads and people doing oh, yeah. weird stuff. And like, and Liquid Liquid sounds a bit like Gamelan, to be honest. It's like oh. disco Gamelan. It's just all these yeah. crazy, um, you know, piles, piles and blankets of different rhythms and, and, and beats and, and stuff going okay. on. Okay. Really great. I'm going to um, look for that, yeah. Yeah, I will definitely, I'll definitely share with you. Um, but, I'm actually browsing an image. I mean, I was, I was looking for them online already, and I have this picture of them in here, and there's something that looks like a, like a steel pan drum, there's like tablas and there's something that totally looks like a frying pan in yeah, there. Yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly I can sound. tell you. I think so I don't know. you're going to love this band. <laughs> Knowing what you're into, I think this is... Um, but something else that you mentioned as well in sharing about these pans and stuff is the idea of like sound sculptures and this being a big part of like, you know, what you've been working on for years and mm-hmm. stuff. And, and maybe that relates a little to what you were doing in Japan and, and things like that as well. But... Yeah, we'd love to yeah. sort of um, flesh that out and explore that a little bit with you. And, you know, for, for someone listening, you know, what is a sound sculpture? What are we talking about when we say that? Okay, absolutely. That's my subject. <laughs> say that, um, I mean, that's what I did my PhD on. And I've been working on that since 2010, but actually 2008, but actually unconsciously from even way beyond. But yeah, sound sculptures, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a new word. So there's not, there's not a strict, clear definition, right? But let's say that um, I, I worked and studied the works uh, of Francois Bachet, who is one of the pioneer or the Bachet brothers, Francois and Bernard Bachet, who were uh, probably the pioneers of sound sculpture. But every sound sculpture would define it in a different way like like marcel duchamp in the 30s uh already uh talked about sound sculptures like if you imagine i mean there could be like two two main uh ways to see that like for instance probably the first sound sculpture that was ever uh made or called like that was marcel duchamp a bruit secret which is like a hidden noise so it's a tiny, like a um, uh, wool thing. Um, how would you call it? Like a turret, like just like a like yeah, like, like a like a fabric spin- spindle um, of wool or something, kind of. Yeah. So and and something was hidden in inside that in between two metal plates. It's like like if you have a like a closed box, something like that, and you put something in, and you can't open that, and you listen to this noise this rattling thing in there shaking the thing and <clears throat> so it was more of a conceptual uh art piece right but it was a sculpture that was created around 
the notion of sound, of a hidden sound. So that is a sculpture that produces sound. Okay, and we call this sound sculpture, right? And then the Bachet brothers arrive and more people arrive, like Harry Bertoya, or maybe like uh, Jan Tingeli, he was making like machine sculptures that sometimes would produce some noises or include like musical instruments that would be played by the machines somehow, blah, blah, blah. And you have all sorts of like people making sound sculpture since the 50s where the Bashir started. But the Bashir were pioneering the field in a very special way. And this is the way that I like to understand that. Like the Bashir brothers were working with Pierre Schaeffer who were <clears throat> and, and the uh, music research group in Paris, late 50s. This is where, when and where electroacoustics began. Like um, when this team of people were able, I mean, they had the machines, they have the technology, to record sound and process sound for the first time in history, in human history, you have tape and tape decks so you can cut and mix things and change speeds and kind of like start processing the sound in a way that has never been done. And they began to theorize, theorize about the morphology of sound, like understanding the shape and the properties that like features or dimensions of sound, like the attack, the body of the sound, the release, and what happens if you change this, if you change that, if you mix this, if you cut the attack of a sound and you change it by another thing, when you listen to that, would you recognize it or not? So they were kind of like playing with sound, like, like a plastic material, like just like making a sculpture, like it was not tangible, but there were all sorts of transformations and deformations and kind of like, yeah, uh, like a very sculptural way of understanding sound, like a, like a matter in itself. And the Bachet were, were working with them. Uh, because this is electroacoustics, it's not yet synthesizing sound, it's just building uh, something new by sampling, by but just like so, you you take real sounds always as a starting point, and then you play you several different processes, and you get to new sounds. So the Bashe were completely aware of that, and they were providing original acoustic sounds to Pierre Schaeffer, and they were working on the on the morphology of sound studies. Traité des objets musicaux. It's the Treaty of Musical Objects, or something like that. That would be a translation. But the Bashev found that, um, I mean, although this new experimental exploration of sound was so amazing, um, <clears throat> you, you lack the direct relationship with the object. Because once you have recorded the thing, then you're dealing with tape. And all the intuitive, aptic, relationship that you can have with the, with an instrument or with an object is gone. It's, it goes into kind of like surgical procedures, but it's, it's the sensuality of that goes away immediately. It, be, it becomes kind of like completely intellectual process in terms of like how you, you do things, <laughs> um, how you operate. And then also the music that was made it was so different to any previous kind of music that 
probably there would be a very, very small audiences for that. You don't even have a performing um, element on that because it just, you edit something and you, and you press the play button and you listen to that, but you don't have a performer. You don't have a stage thing. You don't have any, anything to watch. So, so nowadays we, we are used to listen to, to just like someone in a, with a laptop on, 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 a, on a stage and you believe that this guy is doing something with the computer. It's just like, okay, I don't need to see what he's doing, but he's doing something related to what I listened to. But in the 50s, it was just like, what the hell is that? Right? So, so the Bashir decided to start working on objects that would sound uh, like those electroacoustics, kind of like they were so aware that there were so many different sounds to be explored apart from the conventional or traditional instruments, but they wanted to still preserve the relationship with the object. And this is where, where sound sculpture was born. So it's not just a sculpture that produces sound. It's like they were sculpting the sound itself. They were trying to find new sonorities by working on the materials and shapes. So the materials and shapes are there to achieve that sound. So it's not that, uh, um, decorative, decorational, like, like every shape and every material is what it is in order to get the sound, to get the sound you want. And still making it appealing visually so people can approach it with no any particular preconceived ideas. If it doesn't look like a musical instrument, if it looks like something different, you don't know what to expect. You don't know what is right or wrong. So you're invited to just explore because even if you don't know anything about music or in music school, you've been told, oh, no, you can't, blah, 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 blah. This is not a musical instrument. <laughs> so you're invited. Yeah, something that's making me think about, you know, like you're saying that all this work is happening like in Paris and stuff in the, in the 50s and everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's out there conceptually, but it's making me think about like Krautrock and you know early craft work and craft work themselves yeah. and and everything and um you know in in a way that to me seems like sound sculpture type stuff in terms of the public perception i mean they they definitely built machines that appeared like instruments and they were very much musicians mm -hmm. on stage mm -hmm. playing these crazy futuristic space age looking little things mm. and and what i love about that like i'm assuming a link between these these things or craft worker conscious of some of this prior work um, experiments in sound, but I'm, I'm flashing ahead to how like craft work I know influenced or fueled, you know, hip hop yeah. and all this stuff and was used in all those hip hop records and sampled in the Absolutely. beats and everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Africa Bambata and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like uh, w one of the interesting or curious things about, about the Bashir sound sculpture that still, I think we still have to dig into history and try to find out is like what which were the actual links to and the influences to mm. to, to other stuff because yeah. the thing is that when once uh synthesizers came and appear this was something else this was not working from sampling i mean nowadays we're used so much to be like sampling whatever or field recording and using any kind of sound and you turn it into a uh, melodic or a chord or like effects or like percussion samples, whatever. 
but um, this was not this was not available in the 50s or the 60s. Kind of like now, you can have sounds on tape, but you cannot play them like like in a sample or or like MPC or anything like well, that. Well, that's so, making me think about the Mellotron, though. You know, which is like an early, sort of more later 60s, but you know, it shows up on Beatle, Beatle records because the Mellotron was so damn expensive. But the Beatles had it. So the the intro to like Strawberry Fields Forever. Absolutely, that's the Mellotron. But, you know? but actually, if you think about that, it's like flute sounds, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean like making one sample and creating the whole scale, you know, like a chromatic scale or something like that. It takes, it takes a long time. Yeah. It's like building it, building the whole uh, library of sounds for that particular sound for that flute sound, which is amazing. We all love it, but let's say that only the Beatles, let's say, or just few people could, could deal with that, this kind of stuff. So yeah, Mellotron was something into kind of like this, like linking these different kind of worlds. Yeah. But let's say that when synthesizers came, the whole thing was different because you're you're dealing with with current, you're dealing with with pulses, you're dealing with pure oscillators, let's say, mm-hmm. and you're away from from uh, the complexities of acoustical sounds, and you're rebuilding a new complexity by adding oscillators and modulating blah blah blah, and this new field. It's so amazing that then everyone's attention focuses into that. And then sampling and NPCs bring the thing back together. And now everything is available and we all can play with all the stuff. But in that time, in the 50s, that was not uh, that was not at all the the the, the usual uh, framework of reference for people to listen or for musicians to consider these are tools that I can be using, blah, blah, blah. So the thing is that at some point the Bache were kind of like completely out of any trend, but they they kept working on that and they invented instruments and they invented this Bache crystal, which sounds like a synthesizer, but before any synthesizer was popularized. Of course, there was the theremin, but theremin is monophonic, let's say, but you have a Bache crystal and it's completely like a synthesizer. But in the 50s, people went nuts when they listened to that. <laughs> but when then actual synthesizers appeared, it seemed like, whoa, there are so many amazing things to be done in, in, in synthesis that this is the only thing that it, it exists. And, and that kind of like put the Bache in a, in a kind of like a dark room, kind of like of misunderstandings or people not even knowing them or <clears throat> not understanding that the Bache had created this system that would allow for invention. So let's say that the Bache crystal is a milestone, but to me, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It proof that with their system, you can invent <clears throat> more sounds, more uh, interfaces, even if, if you want them to be like a sound sculpture or like a toy or a sound installation or an instrument. <clears throat> and this, this is a field that is still alive. And luckily, these last decades, there has been, there has been this like a renewed interest into like experimental low theory. People like Bart Hopkin uh, in California has been publishing the EMI, the Experimental Music Instrument uh, Review. And and so many people has been dealing again with, with acoustics and electroacoustics, blah, blah, blah. And the Bache has been um, kind of like acknowledged for their uh, contribution. 
but but for a while it seemed like it were kind of like completely different worlds. So Jean Michel Jarre asked Bachet to make them a Bachet crystal. So you can always find those those links, but but in in many cases it has it seemed like history took like um, different paths. And I'm trying to kind of like bring everything back together because at the end of the day we're dealing with sound and there's no reason to um, just be interested in one specific kind of sound or one specific source of sound. And probably this is why I've been working in in sound sculpture uh, much more than in any other field because um, it's so fun when you can forget about software and hardware and stuff and just prove that with whatever you have in your hands and with like few tools, you can, you can do so much. Uh, and it's so surprising. So um, this, this is probably my, my, my bigger field of interest, but not against anything. It's just kind of like, whoa, I realized that this is so, so cool. So kitchen, kitchenware or whatever can, can be as interesting as the, or, or more intriguing, even more intriguing than, than any sort of high tech stuff that I could be working in. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. So as we like explore all these um, big ideas about sound and all that kind of stuff, and just to like teleport straight back to when we're listening to the smile, um, Johnny Greenwood oh, yeah. and Tom York sure. doing a lot on stage. We're having a good time. We're having a beer. We're talking about uh, exactly this kind of stuff that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we were those guys hanging at the back of the of the general amphitheater, yeah. having having a good time. And um, and very quickly, uh, we got to the fact that yeah, you'd um, you'd experience all this stuff in in Japan um, <laughs> over years and around the kind of sound and music artists and stuff that were present in that scene. And that's something that um, I've been interested in over the years or really enjoyed a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of the bands that come out there. Um, you know, like Boredoms is is, uh, is a name and, and others. But yeah, I, I'd love to ask about, you know, those adventures. How did you find yourself in Japan in the first place? Yeah. Or you like, had you started hearing stuff and you're like, I got to fly out there and, and see what's going on? Like, how how that happened? What did you experience? In okay, so it, it it's a funny. It it can be a, <coughs> sorry. It it can be a long story, but I'll try to make it short. So you, then you can kind of like pick pick it from whatever you you, you wanted. But um, I I always had a, a very deep admiration and and curiosity about Japanese culture and Japanese music and Japanese philosophy, etc. So um, at some point I, I was studying my PhD. Uh, on the Bache sound sculpture uh, acoustical system. And Francois Bache was alive and he was 90 something by then. Maybe he was 92. Uh, by 2012, something like that. And we just got an email from Japan. And there was this guy uh, who had been working uh, as, a, as an assistant to the Bache in 1969 in Osaka. So the thing is that in, in, in 1969, the Bache, the Bache brothers, speci- special, specifically Francois, he was commissioned uh, this sound work 
by Toru Takemitsu, who, who probably is one of the biggest Japanese composers in the 20th century, kind of like the John Cage of Japan, sort mm-hmm. of, uh, which I always loved so much, his work. I, I was always, I mean, I, I already knew about Toru Takemitsu's thing. So I am there studying the work of Bache, knowing that he has been collaborating with Toru Takemitsu. This is already kind of like, wow, I want to know more about this. And then all of a sudden, there's this email coming from Japan. This guy who was an assistant to the Bashe, uh, who had been working with them for the Universal uh, Exhibition in Osaka, 1970, where they built uh, 16 massive sound sculptures commissioned by Takemitsu. And this guy was like 60-something at this point. And he he realized like all the pieces that they built are dismantled and sort of like kept somewhere in a cave or uh, but not really in the best conditions. And he realized like he's getting old and he don't want to pass away uh, leaving all that stuff dismantled into pieces. So he contacts. Uh, he, he he reaches Francois Bache and say, hey, do you have any documentation? Do you have pictures or plans or anything about what this was like? Because I'd like to restore it. So Francois asked me, kind of like, hey, can you send these guys all the documentation we have? Because I had everything on my own because Francois kind of like allowed me to just like study his work. So I was digitalizing everything and trying to understand everything and stuff. So... So I did, I sent them everything we had, drawings and pictures and stuff. And then I thought, then I asked Kronzai, kind of like, hey, but these guys there, will will they really be able to set it back only with the pictures? Like, did you train them? No, that was more like a factory, like a Fordian, like, like different tasks. So the welder welds and the tuner tunes and blah, 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 blah. But there was no one like really, having the full picture. And I was studying my PhD and which is like, hey Francois, I, I can go there and help them. So I can learn from, from your masterpieces. They were probably the best Pache pieces ever made. Like they had unlimited budget in metal and 16 assistants to work on that. Like a huge commission uh, in Osaka and Stomo Yamashita, who was kind of like the first percussion players who play like solo in, in like experimental jazz scene in the 70s. He played on those sound sculptures. It was kind of like, the whole thing was so amazing to me. So uh, I offered myself like, can I, I can go there and help them because I'm studying your work and I already know more than them. <laughs> Francois, he was too old to go there because he was 92, 93. So I was kind of like endorsed to, to go there and, and do that with him. <clears throat> and that led us to uh, find all those amazing new possibilities and face uh, very interesting uh, challenges also about how how do you preserve interactive art pieces that at some point um, require some sort of like maintenance or 
Sometimes you have to make a duplicate of something, but then is the integrity of the, is the same work or not, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so the thing is that uh, we have been restoring some of the pieces there. We can talk about that. Like um, uh, Ruichi Sakamoto uh, discovered that because he had seen the pieces in the 70s. And once he knew that some of the pieces were restored and back to being functional, he went to the university in Kyoto where some of the pieces were left for the students to study them and play them. So Richie Sakamoto went there and sampled them and play on them. Uh, so in the Async album of Sakamoto, there's a little bit of uh, those sounds. And then Sakamoto came back to Barcelona uh, for a concert and we got in touch and he came to our exhibition and we spent one full morning with Richie Sakamoto playing those sound sculptures and thinking about what kind of sounds could we uh, develop for his new music. So this is something that I'm very proud of. Hopefully one day I, I might be still doing something if his health is fine enough. <clears throat> but going to Japan was amazing because, uh, in, well, it was amazing because of so many reasons, but so many doors opened and there was something that was kind of like unexpected to me, but the fact that it's purely simple mechanics, let's say, allows us to like just bring things together, all those elements back together. And it's working in the same way as they did in the 70s. Like no software to update. Like it's just <laughs> like magic. Like you put it back together and you have the sound back there. And that was so uh, magical to all of us uh, because it was like a time time traveling, sort of. And and then all of, all of those amazing things that um, happened when you have uh, live music or real sounds there. But it was again weird because in the seventies when they finished the exhibition, they dismantled anything, so no one else uh, developed any new music on that. So again, it was unrelated to the evolution of experimental music. So no band or anybody would be using those sounds again. Kind of like it, it stopped, the evolution stopped at that point. Like new sounds were born and used for a while, just for some months, and then everything stopped. <laughs> and so, so now we are kind of like facing Again, what can we do with that? But there was no co-evolution with Japanese musicians using that, which is something that I would definitely would love to. Like, let, let's see what those people would do with these sounds. But that part of history was stopped, and this is this is something that we are trying to foster now. Let's see what they these guys would do with this sound. Thank you. 
Well, I know you were telling me you've had the opportunity to also invite various um, Japanese artists and, and musicians stuff mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like out, out to Barcelona and to do things through the university and, um, you know, what kind of stuff were they, were they bringing and, and sharing with um, students and, and folks there? I mean, uh, we had two, two um, big um, uh, visits, let's say, from Japanese musicians to, to Barcelona. Uh, and none was with uh, with students actually. Uh, they came to to get to know better the Bashir sound sculptures and the things that we were doing, the new pieces that we were doing. <clears throat> Besides uh, Ruichi Sakamoto, who just came alone, like the exhibition was uh, closed for him, so he could just spend time and listen, etc. But we had <clears throat> we had this. Uh, uh, professors of music from the Kyoto University, and they were were just uh, visiting and, and trying to understand and and get to know more pieces and have a better picture of that. Uh, the same way that we did there, where they are they were playing um, their own compositions, and their students were playing their own compositions for the sound sculptures. So this is something that we did in Japan, and it was so amazing. Because in some cases they were mixing it with, uh, with boys or with with uh, wind instruments or with live electronics, <clears throat> and that is something that happened in Japan but not here. So when they came here, they were um, trying to broaden their their understanding and broaden the, the, the palette of of sounds that you can achieve with this kind of things. <clears throat> and the second amazing uh, Japanese visits we had in here were the Yamashiro Gumi, the people who made the soundtrack for Akira, <clears throat> which to me is like an absolutely mind-blowing connection because we started into Gamelan because of Akira. And <clears throat> we are so uh, into uh, this uh, kind of like prog rock uh, mix of like gamelan and guitars and MIDI and electronics and blah 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 and, and, and <clears throat> that album was so so uh, uh, important for us. So <clears throat> the fact that after a few years uh, the Yamashiro Gomi are interested in Bashe and we met in Japan for the first time. We invited them when I finished the restoration of the two first sound sculptures. They came and they were so so interested, interested because they already knew it from historical records. They, they, they were aware about the Bache work. Um, so um, we invited them to come to Europe to go to Paris, where some of the Bache sound cultures were, and come to Barcelona. So they were sampling and studying them. And this is a, I can just like open this door if you want to, we can discuss that or not. But the thing is that the Bashaya Yamashiro Gumi, uh, uh, the, the Keino Yamashiro Gumi, when they recorded the, this uh, Akira soundtrack, they were uh, trying to record it in the uh, best fidelity they could. So they realized that Gamelan produces like super high overtones, like super high frequencies, higher than the human hearing range. And they were they were wondering. I mean, what happens with like 50k 
hertz or 60 gigahertz or 80 gigahertz. Like what, what the hell is that? I mean, how do you even perceive that? Do you perceive that or not? Or what's going on? Like, I mean, if, if you don't record it and you don't reproduce that, then of course there's nothing. But in real listening to the real gamelan, you're under the influence of those super high frequencies. So they started studying that. And they develop a special technology to recording that <clears throat> like high edge of sound, which is not even sound, sort of, to us. And they started studying uh, what, what happens to your brain when you listen to hypersonic frequencies. <clears throat> and there was this uh, paper in, at the American Journal of Psychology uh, that they, they wrote, they published that study uh, in which they argue in favor of like, when you're under the influence of like, just listening to these high, high frequencies, your brain starts working like after years of meditation, like you come into a special mode of perception that you can only achieve through years of, of meditation. But when you listen to that, those areas in your brain and the, and the, uh, irrigation fluxes and everything changes. <clears throat> so they were they they were very interested in uh, finding what kind of, I mean, how beneficial this can be for you know like health, like mental health or like well being. And at the same time, they were interested in finding like can can we reproduce this thing with any with some other source of sound, like maybe many people would not listen to gamelan music but are there other sources for this kind of sound that could be beneficial in that terms so the fact is that we realize that with some of the Bache instruments we also have those hypersonic content uh, um, with my zoom recorders and stuff I can only sample into up until 48 kilohertz but that's already a lot like that's way beyond your hearing range, which would end about like 18,000 or 20 kilohertz, right? So I was I was recording some of the machine sound sculptures and I could I, I do it in the maximum uh, resolution range. And I saw that there was loads of activity there, loads of energy beyond 40K hertz. So that was already kind of like into the hypersonic realm, but I couldn't really sample higher than that so i told that to the yamashiro gumi kind of like hey maybe we have something here and this is why they came and they found that some of the sound sculptures went beyond gamelan near 100 kilohertz that's a lot and they discovered that and published another book on their hypersonic research mentioning these things here so this is a, a field of research that we have open and that we need to find some way to, to go deeper into that field because it, it could prove uh, that listening to sound and performing sound can be actually very healthy and beneficial for, for people. Not just because we enjoy and it's fun, but because it, it does something beneficial to your brain, sort of. Yeah, so here's something I want to ask you about um, before maybe we, we jump soon and... Uh... Certainly, mm -hmm. we'll invite you back for more fun UFO times in in the future. But you know, as as you're talking there about these like hypersonic 
sounds or, mm -hmm. or this kind of thing and it's like resonance with our consciousness or well-being or you know resonance in general and this notion of like we live in a sound-based universe and reality it's all mm -hmm. waves and mm -hmm. vibration mm -hmm. and and this kind of stuff and just as you're describing like we need more sensitive instruments to pick up what's happening here <laughs> with this yeah with this sculpture yeah. i feel like you know, it's, you know, we talk about what is the future of science and all that? Is it like, are we exploring out into the universe and into space or do we go in? Do you like dive mm -hmm, deep into mm -hmm. the super, super microscopic beyond, you know? And then, I mean, there was an article earlier today saying scientists had created a wormhole and sent a signal through it at a nanoscale or something that was just published oh. today in a first ever kind of thing. And they're talking about, you know, real crazy stuff in that realm. But as you're sharing about, you know, what, what has been, traditional and folk music and passed down over centuries and then re-explored and there's something about the very fabric of reality that is sound mm -hmm. and that like what you and and these people are exploring is kind of like almost starting to grapple with or get our hands on on what this is and and revealing things about you know about reality itself yeah i guess i guess the, that's the uh, kind of like shocking thing like <clears throat> like we we try to understand things and we we need to look kind of like really far away like back in time the big bang blah 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 kind of like yeah cosmology and we try to understand our place in the universe and we're just like this tiny little nothingness uh but at the same time it's like, yeah, but this is super unique, you know, like entropy, like life is reversing entropy or like kind of like fighting entropy back. So what's this singularity? What the hell is this that we're living in? And so <clears throat> it's interesting to see how this different, like like from ba Balinese music has this kind of like trans um, dimension, you know, like just like listening to that induces trance like real trance moments in which where people kind of like lose their mind or they're they are kind of like in a completely meditative state i mean all those different dimensions that now westerners we start to be aware of but they've been doing that for centuries so it's it's interesting to see how kind of like we we are kind of a, on this loop, kind of like trying to understand things and going up forwards and backwards. And so to me, it's I mean, I, I hope that that uh, new, neurology is like a very super recent young science, but understanding better about the brain and what happens with our perception and what is I mean. It, it, it's all super recent. I mean, yeah, there has been philosophers thinking about that, but it's so recent that we can actually look at neurons and look at this sort of like what is going on there. And we don't even understand what mind is and where mind is or, or but we know that there should be some link between this hardware and the software. And <laughs> like, we, we just begin to understand. So of course it's all beyond my own, field of activities but i'm i'm not even surprised but yeah let's say that i'm happy to see that the things that i'm working in they are kind of like interconnected into kind of like bigger things kind of like <clears throat> i'm dealing with sound i'm dealing with very simple objects sometimes it's cowbells i'm making music with cowbells it's much less transcendental apparently 
you know, like that uh, Balin is gone or like sometimes it's, I, I try to take it and keep it humble. But no matter what the direction you work from, you end up having this connection to kind of like bigger and bigger spheres. So that's something that it's, it's kind of like very relevant to me, kind of like, yeah, hypersonic sound is one of those gates or one of those open doors that can illuminate us about what sound can do to our consciousness, blah, blah, blah. But even if it's not hypersonic, even if it's the voice of your siblings or someone singing in the street or listening to the rain or listening to a bird sing, I mean, how these things affect us, even if it's the simplest thing, I, I, I feel like it, we're just beginning to understand. But intuitively, we know that these things are important. Like, even if it's kind of like, it appears to be pointless and capitalism doesn't really know what to do with that. You know, like, yeah, we can sell it. We can make it a product. But no matter how you think about those activities or like dancing, you know, like things that appear to be completely useless or pointless or non really productive, we have this tendency as human beings. We like to listen to stuff. And one thing that we learned from the Bashe brothers that I try to always like have very, very present in my daily life is like, if you allow people to make noise, to make some sound, they would do it. So we like to listen, but we also like to be the sound producers, to be the one that hits the thing, the one that rubs the thing, the one that, you know, this direct relationship in which you do something and the world answers. And you have this immediate connection. I think that this is something super special, like, like kids playing, you know, like there are mysteries in the universe, but when it's you doing something and the world answering, you feel this connection. And I think that here's, there's some sort of like promise or some space for hope because we are still curious. We still feel like there's, there are things to do and things to discover. And I think that after the 20th century and, you know, postmodern nihilism and stuff, to have these areas in which you can still have people engaged and being active and feeling alive, that's, that's very comforting to me. Like finding those gaps in where you can kind of like have this, this emotion or this, ah, I want some more, what's going on? I think that this, this is very important to preserve to, to keep, keep keep some flame alive, right? Yeah, I just want to thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Really enjoyed uh, this conversation and as always, uh, chatting with you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, it, it's, a, it's a honor to be here. It's great that our friends have been listening to us. So uh, I'm here for whatever else. Thank you to Marty for coming on UFO. You can find him on Instagram at M-A-R-T-I underscore R-U-I-D-S. Links to his projects and music are in the show notes at ufo.mira.xyz. Thanks to our sponsors who made this episode possible. To get started with Zerion and create your new crypto wallet, head to zerion.io. To join the Lens ecosystem and explore the future of Web3 social, be active around UFO, engage with us on Twitter, get in touch, looking forward to invite you. Subscribe and collect our NFTs at ufoclub.lens. This is Nick Hollins signing off from UFO.